Well, we have two more Sundays to worship together in this building. Then we'll be uh, today and next week, and then we'll be moving to Woodstock Elementary School, where uh, we will begin making preparations for a new building down the road, literally, and also temporally. And there's a there's a sense with many of us that while this ought to be a, a time when we feel excited about the future, the reality is we feel a little bit sad. I mean, that's just the truth of the matter. It may not be as impactful to you if you're relatively new around here. You may have some, some uh, feelings about this uh, move, but they have more to do with maybe concern and worry about how we're going to pull this off logistically and you know, how we're going to manage, uh, you know, setting up and tearing down and all those other sort of logistical details. But most of that is having to do with what lies ahead and your concerns might be there. But if you've been here for a while, it's not just what lies ahead that is on your heart. It's really what's in the past. It's 12 years in this building where, you know, you have made some memories and some friendships and some relationships. And so it's difficult to really Look at the future uh, at this point in time with maybe the sense of excitement that you feel like you ought to have for what the Lord might be doing. And listen, I understand that. I mean, I think I'm probably as excited as anyone in the room about what lies ahead. And yet with me, there's still a sense of sadness. There's a little sense of sadness because of what's taken place in our lives over the last 12 years. I was thinking about that this week, and I was really thinking, you know, I really would not want it any other way. I really would, I really would hate it if I was looking forward to getting out of this place because I had such terrible memories. But the reality is, they're great memories. They're wonderful memories of time together in ministry, wonderful memories of relationships that the Lord has forged as He's continued to grow the population of this church and brought new families seemingly every year into our lives that just bless us and enrich us in so many ways. There are memories of ministry that we've done together and sacrifices that we've done together and acts of service that we've participated in together, lives that we've seen changed, people who've come to know the, uh, the Lord uh, at de- various points in time. And so I look back over the last 12 years and I'm t- incredibly grateful that it is full of good memories. And so it's natural that as I would begin to think about a major transition like this, that there would be in my heart a sense of sadness. The sadness just reminds me of how good the Lord has been to us as a church in the body of Christ in this location. But what I really want to guard myself against is to begin to think that it's actually this building that made the memories, that it's actually the bricks and mortar that made the memories. I want to guard myself from beginning to think that somehow the building is the church or the church is the building because we have better, we've we've learned better theology than that, right? I mean, we learned that from very early, you know, this is the church, this is the steeple, open. Oh, wait, that's the wrong, that's bad theology. This is the church, right? It's the people. I want to remind myself of that as I look back over the last 12 years, and I think about all the wonderful things that have taken place, I think about them, maybe in terms, at this point because of the location, maybe in terms of the location, but really all the wonderful memories have to do with the people. They have to do with the church. 
All those things. This is basic. We understand that when the Apostle Paul refers to the church at wherever, the church at Corinth, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Ephesus, we understand that when he says that, he's not talking about a building. Many of the churches in the first century, in fact, none of the churches in the first century had a building. They were just the church represented by the gathering of a bunch of people who had been saved by the grace of God and through the Savior. They were publicly identifiable as the church because of their gathering together, not because of their building. We understand that in many places around the world, there are plenty of churches that gather together and operate Without buildings, they are witnessing, they are gathering, they are worshiping, they are ministering, they are participating together in acts of sacrifice, they're seeing spiritual growth, they're impacting lives, they're seeing folks come to know Christ, and they do it all without their own facilities. Sometimes in rented facilities, sometimes under a tree, all over the world. Even here in our own community in Woodstock, there are a number of churches that gather together to worship the Lord every week without facilities. Anywhere from a few people to a few thousand people do this right in our own backyard. These are, these are the realities of what the church is. They're truths that we know. They're doctrines that we know from reading the scripture. The issue is that this doctrine isn't always tested in the same way that it's being tested now. And when you're tested, the thing that you are to do is you come back to the Scripture and you remind yourself of the truths that you ought to know. You remind yourselves, even as we remind ourselves now, and we will continue to remind ourselves in the future, even as we get ready to build this uh, big, beautiful building one day, we will remind ourselves again uh, that it's not a building that really this is all about. It's about a church. It's about who we are as the body of Christ. So as we say goodbye really to this building, I thought it would be helpful for us if we kind of refocused on some of this calling as a church. Understanding that the memories go with us and the, and the relationships go with us, the ministry goes with us. And so we can choose while we are certainly drawn away by our emotions and those wonderful memories from the past, we can choose not to focus on the past 12 years, but really to look at the next 12 years. Really to begin to think and anticipate because the same people are with us uh, as we go, the same ministries are with us, to begin to anticipate that as the Lord has been good in the past, He will be good in the future. And as ministry has flourished in the past, it can flourish in the future. And so I I myself, you know, I, I, I do that. I sort of force myself to think about the next 12 years, and I begin to sense the excitement of what the Lord can do, not because of any particular building or location or anything like that, but because of the opportunities, because of the people that I believe the Lord will inevitably bring across our way, some that we're aware of, some that we may not even know. And, uh, and we trust the Lord will be good through that. As I've been thinking about this week, I was drawn back to this passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 16 that I've read many times, that I've preached on a number of times. And, and really reading through it again, I was reminded of some truths that need to be on my heart and mind and need to be on our heart and mind 
as we think about this move ahead. They come from the life of the Apostle Paul, who certainly was one of the most effective ministers, obviously, in the history of the church. He was a spirit-filled man, no doubt. He was a sound-minded man in faith and in doctrine and in judgment. He was dedicated to the glory of God and amazingly effective, not only at establishing churches across a broad range of, of locations but incredibly effective in his ministry of raising up leaders for a generation to come. While most of what we read from the Apostle Paul certainly has to do with doctrine and with with practice in the church, we occasionally get these glimpses into his personal life, into his ministry, into what we might even call his philosophy. And it's from these that we can gather, if you will, a bit of a model for ourselves, a model minister, or we might even say a model ministry. A model of the mindset of the kind of man that the Lord used in tremendous ways. And what were some of those factors that the Lord was working in him and through him to accomplish some of those things. And so we look at it this morning and we focus briefly just on these few verses in 1 Corinthians 16 from verse 5 through 9. Paul speaking about his own planning. He says this. He says, I will visit you after... After passing through Macedonia, for I intended to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. This is a a glimpse into the Apostle Paul's life, and it indicates, uh, I believe, several patterns of his ministry. And we could name just three of them this morning that I think are helpful for us, and I certainly don't claim any originality in this. These are, these are things which are spoken about in MacArthur's uh, book uh, on the, uh, uh, what are they, the Master's Plan for the Church. I, I, I could see the cover, but I couldn't remember the name. But these marks, I think, are evident from the passage of Scripture. And the first one is just simply this. Paul's ministry is marked by vision. It was marked by vision. Paul says in verses 5 and 6 that he has these plans. He has these intentions. He wants to do all these things. We would say in modern terms, when it comes to the Apostle Paul, that if you fail to plan, you certainly plan to fail, right? And Paul understood that. He, he was not the kind of person who was just sort of content to get by to the next week. His goal was not simply to sort of sustain whatever he had accomplished. And it wasn't just to survive through one more drudgery of a week. He was, as every effective leader, a man who was filled with vision. He had a plan. He saw needs. He saw areas that needed to be impacted and, and touched. And he knew that he couldn't tackle them all at once or all at the same time. He knew that some were more pressing in terms of their needs than others. And he knew that in some cases it was more effective to deal with them in the current circumstances in certain ways. But it didn't eliminate from him the idea of planning. He had a plan. He knew there were needs in Ephesus that would require him to remain there till Pentecost. He knew there were needs in Corinth 
that would require him to make at least one trip there and to spend a significant amount of time with him. He had plans beyond that to go to Rome and to establish a partnership and a relationship as we've seen in the book of Romans with them. Not just that, he wanted to establish that partnership for one very specific reason because he wanted to be helped by them to get on to Spain. Now these were far-reaching plans and far out. Paul is writing this in in the early to mid-50s as he writes to the Corinthians. Many of these things wouldn't take place or, or at least were not even scheduled in his mind to take place for six, seven, eight years down the road. Paul understood that it would take a long time for him to realize and to accomplish some of these plans. And, and yet he knew that in order to pull it off, he had to map out some pathway. He had to partner with some people. He had to draw alongside of him those who would stand with him in prayer, who would stand with him financially, those who would help him along his way. And so even to accomplish his larger goals, he had work to do with his current partners. He had to spend some time investing in the foundations of his church before he would ever have the ability to reach further than where he is. He had vision. He had plans. He was compelled by needs. He was compelled by opportunities. He was compelled by challenges to reach beyond his current grasp. And for Paul... It wasn't enough just simply to see the need and just to understand the need and hope that someone would step up to the plate and meet the need. It wasn't enough for him simply to to know that it was out there and, and maybe think that someone else could minister to that. Some other church could take on that challenge. Some other person could make that sacrifice. When Paul saw needs, he formulated a plan to meet those needs and address those needs the best that he could. He not only saw what needed to be done, but he understood timetables. He understood sequences. He understood what we would call logistics. He had an idea of how long it would take him and when he would get around to addressing each need along the step of the way to systematically accomplish the larger goal. This is the way effective ministries think. This is why we do some of the things that we do. This is why we, even with this move, As bold as it might be in the minds of some, we're compelled, not just because we're looking for a headache, but because we see need, we see opportunity, we understand a a population center that that is uh, around the hub of this new location, and we want to be there. Why? Because we want to do things that would raise up future generations. We want to a training center that will train counselors. We want a training center that will train up future pastors. We want to impact people with sound doctrine. We want to reach the lost with the gospel who may not ever be maybe in contact with us otherwise. For all these reasons, we accept this challenge. We go after this challenge. But we understand it may take years. We understand it may take great sacrifices. We understand it needs a lot of partners. We understand all those things. But effective ministries reach. They reach. Even in the Apostle Paul's life, we might take note of one really far reach, which was his goal of going to Spain. Hispania, as the Latins called it, or the Greeks called it. It was the land of the Iberians and Celts. 
In those days, it was a territory that had been fought over for 200 years by Rome, had only been under Roman control really for about 70 years at this point. It was a war-ravaged area, a place where those from the east would have been still looked upon with distrust and suspicion. It was a rugged terrain, a kingdom that by Roman and Greek uh, standards would have been still considered uncivilized. One Roman historian noted it as the place to train tough soldiers because of its conditions. And yet the amazing thing is that although Christianity really didn't penetrate Spain until late in the first century, by the middle to late second century, it was already, if not the strongest foothold of Christianity in the entire Roman Empire. In other words, the gospel caught on like wildfire there. And when it did, almost every major city was overtaken with the gospel so that it eventually was transformed from a place known as the land of barbarians to what one writer called the mother of judges and princes. In other words, it became a, a, a place of leadership where leaders came out of. It became an intellectual hub throughout all of Europe. Three of Rome's most successful emperors would eventually come from Spain, and a few of the tutors who actually tutored other emperors came from there. Maybe Paul saw all this, at least in his mind, even if he never physically made it. Maybe he understood all of this potential. Maybe he understood that this was the place, even through all the rough conditions and even through all the challenges, that if they could reach this place, the potential outcome of reaching the entire Roman Empire would absolutely stimulate and generate a movement that would transform the world. Maybe he understood all that. Or maybe he just saw the need that no one else was doing it. And he wanted to be there to do what no one else was doing. We don't know what it was that propelled him to formulate this daring plan to make it all the way to Spain to preach the gospel there. But what we do know was for him it was worth all the sacrifice. For him it was worth years of advanced planning. Years of building partnership. Years of putting together sequences to do great things for the Lord. In the short term, Paul knew, however, that he had to do some other work. And that's what he really speaks about here in 1 Corinthians. He had a a short-term plan that was going to take him through what was essentially the next year of his life. And you can see it laid out here. He writes how he was going to... He's writing from Ephesus as he writes this section of Corinthians. And he was going to, instead of sailing directly across the Aegean Sea... Uh, where he could have made it directly to Corinth, he was going to travel up through what is known as Turkey today, but really called Asia at that point, so that along the way he could visit various churches like Troas and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea until he eventually came down into Greece and he would arrive at Corinth, which he says in verse 7, He hoped to be able to get there and stay the winter with them, which would have been necessary if he wanted to sail to Judea because shipping basically shut down during the harsh winter months. And so basically from about mid-December all the way through mid-March, he wouldn't be able to go anywhere. And that would give him 
that solid three, four, maybe five months that he needed in Corinth to assess the issues, to be with the leadership, to address the problems and to deal with them. It was a great plan. In fact, it was exactly the plan that he carried out in Acts chapter 20. If you go and read uh, that book of Acts, Acts 19 and 20, really, what you see is exactly what he talks about here. He carried it out as he intended. The problem was that this wasn't the first plan he put on the table. The problem was that at some point in time, we don't know, but at some point in time previously, he had shared a different plan with the Corinthians. He had told them previously that what he would do would be to sail directly across the Aegean Sea, meet up with them, from Corinth go up into Macedonia, come back down from Macedonia, and then from Corinth sail to Judea. So in fact, he would visit them twice, which really brings us to a second pattern that we find in the Apostle Paul's ministry, which is simply this, flexibility in the planning. Flexibility in planning. Paul says there in verse 5, I intended to pass through Macedonia and perhaps stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Paul, Paul had this plan, but he fills it, you'll see, with language. I intend to do this. Perhaps I'll do this. If the Lord wills, I hope to do this. He understood that he makes his plans, the hearts of a man establishes his plans, but the Lord directs his steps. He's staying, he says in verse 9, because the Lord had opened a, a door of opportunity. Because he needed to stay longer. Because something happened that he didn't anticipate, that he didn't foresee. And so he had to make a change in his plan. He would stay there till Pentecost, which means that his plan to visit them twice wouldn't go through. He would have to, if he wanted to see all these churches, come up through Macedonia down to them and then from them be sent on his way to, to Judea. Well, this change in Paul's plan was a problem for some of the Corinthians because at the end of the day, they were not flexible. Because they didn't understand the, 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 the mindset, if you will, of an effective minister who is always open to what the Lord might do in his plans. And so what they began to do is accuse Paul of some ill motive. They began to accuse Paul of either in one sense being intentionally duplicitous or in another sense just not reliable in judgment. So that they eventually began to say that when Paul says yes, you might as well understand no. When Paul says yes, it really means no. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look right across the page to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You'll see this issue. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul has to write to the Corinthian church to, to explain and address this rumor or this, uh, this uh, attack against his character. He says in 2 Corinthians 1.15, because I was sure of this, of, of what? He, he's talking about their love, their affection, their confidence in him, because they would boast about Paul, they would boast about his relationship, they would boast about their connection with him. And, and so Paul says, look, because I was 
confident in my connection with you, because I was confident because we had shared our lives together and all of this. He says, because of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. His original plan, as I said, was to come to them twice. He would come to them one time, move up through Greece, come back down through Greece and give them a second work of grace. Two visits along the way. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. That was the original plan. But it had to change. It had to change because circumstances changed. Because opportunities changed. Because opportunities for the gospel presented itself that impacted the way that Paul would respond. And so he says in the next verse, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? This is exactly what they accuse Paul of saying, that when he says yes, yes, he really means no, no at the same time. That you can't believe a word that comes out of his mouth, that he's untrustworthy. As Paul says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Paul's saying, that's not the kind of person I am. I'm not the kind of person who's telling you one thing while all the while I'm intending something else. In other words, I'm not a manipulator. I'm not a person who's going to sell you what you want to hear in order to just simply yank the carpet from under your feet. I'm not a person who's going to present something to you that I don't have intentions fully of, of carrying out. And so there was this misunderstanding. But the misunderstanding was primarily rooted not in a missionary or a minister that was untrustworthy. The problem primarily was a church that didn't understand flexibility. They didn't understand flexibility. They should have understood that as you go through ministry, you make plans, you make decisions, but those plans are always subject to change as the Lord continues to open and close doors. And as I said there in in 1 Corinthians 16, you hear it from Paul's perspective. Verse 6, perhaps... I shall stay with you again, or perhaps even spend the winter with you where, and be sent on my way wherever I may go. He's not, even, he's not even nailing himself down to a specific location. He says in verse 7, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And so he just fills his language with all of this acknowledgement that I've got these plans, but the Lord is in control. I've got all this stuff that I want to do. I've got all this stuff that, 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 that Timothy and I and my co-workers want to accomplish. But it's all if the Lord permits. It's all what we hope. It's all what we intend. It's all what might happen. But Paul understood a deep sense of the sovereignty of God as every effective minister does. And he understood that while he makes his plans, he has to stay open. Because every effective ministry needs to be flexible enough to the Lord's leading in your life. Paul even learned this previously. Acts 16 speaks about his ministry. In Acts 16, verse 6, it says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. So here they are in, in Turkey And they're trying to go north through Turkey into what we might even think of as the Slavic countries. 
They're trying to push up into this area. They wanted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul was a planner. He had plans, he had visions, he had goals, but he understood that he was not infallible. He did the best he could, but he remained flexible. And he understood that his plans were only as good as the Lord's choice to work through them. I remember learning this as a young man, preparing when I was in college as a part of an Athletes in Action team. We were going to go and we were going to scrimmage the Romanian baseball team. Back in those days, they actually played Olympics as an exhibition sport in, in the Olympics. Uh, baseball is an exhibition sport in the Olympics. And so we were going and we were going to scrimmage them, just sort of give them someone to beat up on a little bit. And I remember we practiced. We met every Monday night. We'd go out there. We'd you know, do hitting practices and, uh, and fielding practices and all that. We were trying to train ourselves like a real team. We went out and we pounded the pavement, got people to donate all kinds of equipment. We were carrying bags of gloves and catcher's outfits and bats and balls and all this stuff. And we loaded it all up on the plane and we, we uh, made this big trip. I remember landing at the Romanian airport. They were still just barely coming out of communism in those days. And it was just filled with soldiers carrying these big guns. And we, we, we went in there and we collected all these bags. And we were standing there with this mountain of equipment. And the uh, contact person, a Romanian guy, met us at the airport. And he said, um, the baseball team's decided not to do anything with us. So we're like, what? I mean, we, we just, you know, we invest all this time, all this sacrifice, all this money, all this stuff, and, and there's nothing for us to do. He said, well, I mean, there is a handball team that's looking for someone to scrimmage. I didn't even know what handball was. <laughs> so the next morning, you know, we spent 30 minutes or an hour learning the rules of handball, and we spent the week just running around like fools on a handball court trying to figure out how to be competitive with this team so that they'd have someone to practice with. But the amazing thing, the amazing thing is how the gospel touched the lives of those handball players. Relationships were formed there that that continued on for years with some of our teammates. Even seeing the, the gospel penetrate hearts and people get saved. Not to mention what the Lord did in our own heart. Helping us be stripped away from all of our own preparations, from all of our own trust in all of our own planning, from all of the stuff that we thought would be happening, stripped away so that we were on our knees immediately, praying and pleading to God to somehow make something of what looked like a failed trip in our minds, but wasn't a failure in God's mind. Paul understood all of this. He understood that if he expected the Lord to use him, he had to remain flexible. We understand that. I mean, even as we make this move, we understand that we make plans. We announce things. We put up timetables, but we may we never present them as if they are written in stone. May we never present them as if our plans are the final plan. May we never fail to at least tell ourselves, if not frequently, tell each other, if the Lord permits. If the Lord wills, and perhaps, perhaps he may allow us to do these things. 
We go and we go as any effective minister does under the sovereignty of God. Under the sovereignty of God. Looking for the Lord to do whatever he wants to do through us. Looking for opportunities that might present themselves. Which is really the third pattern in the Apostle Paul's life. Which was simply faithfulness in present opportunities. This is what Paul says in verse 8. I, I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Paul said, look, I, I'm here because an opportunity has presented itself. I'm here because the timing has presented itself. Because I've got to, I've got to seize on this. Paul didn't put on some spiritual front. And just walk out of the city of Ephesus and pretend, hey, God's in control of it all. So I don't need to worry about about timing and all that other stuff. I don't need to worry about seizing this opportunity. He understood that there was a narrow door and that if he didn't take that door now, it may not be there for him in the future. He understood all those things. And so what he's saying is, I'm going I'm to change all of my plans because I've got to seize this opportunity of a wide open door of ministry. Now, when he said a wide open door, you need to understand what he's talking about. Because we use that term all the time. We, we talk about, hey, would you pray for me that the Lord would open a door Open a door for me to share the gospel at work. Open a door for me to share the gospel with my neighbors or whatever it might be. We, we use that terminology, but I don't think we use it in the way that the Bible uses it. Because the Bible uses an open door in the sense of someone actively trying to shut it. It uses the open door in the sense that God opens a door and no one is able to shut it. In other words, an open door is specifically addressed or specifically spoken about in the context of active opposition and, and physical barriers to the preaching of the gospel. Let me show you that. If you, if you have your Bibles, look at Revelation chapter 3 for just a moment. Revelation 3 and verse 7 is a letter that was written by the Lord to the church at Philadelphia. And the letter says this, the angel of the, uh, of the church in Philadelphia, or to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one opens. In other words, God says, I, I'm sovereign. I'm sovereign over the circumstances. I'm sovereign over the opportunities. And this is what he says, I know your works, behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. And verse 9 tells you who the men are who would close this door. It says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not but lie and are not but lie behold i will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that i have loved you in other words he's saying there in philadelphia there were some Jews who were in the synagogue and they were actively trying to shut the door they were actively trying to whether it be expel the christian leaders or whether it be to to manipulate the city leaders to shut down physically the preaching of the gospel. And what God is saying to this church is they're not going to be able to shut the door. They're not going to be able to impede 
Your active witnessing of the gospel. You may not have much power. You may not have positions of authority in the city, but they won't be able to stop it. Why? Because I'm, I'm sovereign. Because I'm sovereign. And when Paul speaks about an open door, this is the way he speaks of it as well. He speaks of it specifically as the Lord removing the attempts of men to silence the gospel. Remove the man-made restrictions. It's not the way people use open door today, I don't think, at least in my experience. What people normally mean when they say they want an open door is they want an easy ministry. I mean, I've been through this, I mean, I don't know how many times people are, people are, you know, will come to me and say, Pastor, would you, would you pray for me that God would open a door for me to share my faith at, at work? And I'll say, well, well who's stopping you? Oh, I mean, I mean, you know, it's just kind of a difficult environment. So you're saying that sharing the gospel is going to be difficult. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you're free to share the gospel of faith. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's no rules against it or anything like that. So what's stopping you? See, what they mean when they say, Pastor, pray for me to have an open door is, Pastor, would you pray that someone would come and knock on my cubicle and say, how can I be a Christian? <laughs> That's what they want. They want easy ministry. They want ministry that's going to fall into their laps. They want ministry that's not going to require sacrifice. It's not going to require risk. What they're saying is, I want to serve the Lord, but I don't want to lose my job for it. I want to serve the Lord, but I don't want to lose my income. I want to serve the Lord, but I don't want to put anything on the line. I, don't, I, I want to do something for God. I just want it to be easy. And this is what people mean when they say an open door. This is not what Paul meant. Paul, when he thought about an open door, he didn't think about easy ministry. In fact, nothing in Ephesus was easy. It was a debauched place like many places in that day. It was the home of the temple of Diana, which was full of all kinds of idolatry, not to mention its own temple prostitutes. It was full of sensuality. It was a hub of the occult. This was one of the occult uh, 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 centers of the world. People practice magic. They practice sorcery. They had all these kinds of, of what we would call oppressive and dark arts that were taking place all around Paul. And he, w- he went into the city, we're told, and preached the gospel for three months in the synagogue until they got sick of him. And then they kicked him out. And then he went into the hall of Tyrannus and preached the gospel there until eventually there was a riot Because people started to respond to the gospel. And when they responded to the gospel, not only did they stop participating in all of this uh, uh, sexual immorality. But they went and they took all of their sorcery books. And they burned their books in the middle of the city. And then they stopped buying all of the idols. Which generated so much of the income in the city. And so here you have on three fronts. You have if you will, some of the economic drivers of the city being impacted. The people who made the idols, the people who sold the sorcery books, and the prostitutes. And now all of them were without customers. And so it caused a riot. It caused a riot in the city, and people attempted to physically and legally prevent Paul from preaching. They made their attempt, but they weren't able And this seems to be about the time that Paul wrote this letter. 
And what he's saying is, or, or what he's not saying is, hey, everything's real easy here right now. And, you know, I would rather just stay in the easy place. Paul's not saying, I'm going to stay here because it's comfortable, because it doesn't require any sacrifice of me, because there's no risk. He's not saying any of that. In fact, he knew he could be thrown in jail tomorrow. He knew that people could, you know, take him out in whatever way. He's not suggesting that there's an open door because everything was easy. And Paul's not the kind of person that looked for just the easy spot. He was inherently a risk taker. He would go out there and he would put things on the line. He would put his life on the line for the sake of the gospel. But what he meant was that while some people want to oppose what we're doing, God is opening the door. That God is preventing them from stopping. Because when God is doing something, no man will prevent it. And so he says to them, you know, God's just done this. I mean, God's doing an amazing thing. People are getting saved. People who are trying to oppose what we're doing are not able to do it. When God decides to open a door, no one shuts it. When God shuts the door, no one opens it. In Colossians 4, 3, he says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. In other words, Paul says, look, would you pray? And he was asking them to pray literally that God would open the prison doors. He wasn't looking for an easy ministry, but what he wanted was at least the physical barriers to his preaching of the gospel to be removed, at least for a period of time. He says to the Thessalonians, brothers, pray for us that the word of God may speed ahead and be honored as it happened among you and that we might be delivered from wicked and evil men. In other words, he says, pray that there would be no physical impediment to the preaching of the gospel. Paul never expected ministry to be easy. He never expected the preaching of the gospel to be easy. He never expected that when he went and preached the gospel, there would be no rejection. He understood those things go with the territory. But at the very least, he asked that people would pray that he would be spared from these physical obstacles. Even here in 1 Corinthians 16, or back in 1 Corinthians 16, when Paul writes from the city of Ephesus, and he says that an open door for effective service is there, in the very next verse, what does he say? But there are many adversaries. There are many people who don't want it to be this way. There are many people who want to shut this door. These enemies, let's be clear, are those who hate the preaching of the gospel. These enemies are unbelievers. These enemies are people who do not want to see the glory of God proclaimed. They do not want to see the word of God proclaimed. And Paul says, we are going to stay because for the time being, even while they're attempting to do this, obviously God doesn't want it to happen. And so we conclude, because of the circumstances, because of what's taking place circumstantially, we conclude that God wants us to be here. God wants us to do this ministry. God wants us to continue to preach here. All this, again, is not suggesting that that, uh, Paul was just simply looking for some easy place of ministry. He understood what it took to be effective for the Lord. Everyone who ministers effectively understands that. Everyone understands, really, that, that these kinds of challenges... 
They understood that these kinds of obstacles are not necessarily signs that God is not working. They actually might be signs that God is working. Effective ministries don't flee from challenge. They embrace it. Why? Because they know it's greater opportunities to, first of all, see God do amazing things. And second of all, to see how we can trust God in amazing ways. There in 2 Corinthians, if you, if you go over there again, Paul says to them in verse 8, speaking again about his time in Corinth, he says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, that is in Ephesus. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You know, I, I'm not unaware of challenges that face us even with this move. I, believe me, I've spent hours and hours and hours talking to people, reading things in meetings, talking about the challenges of setting up a worship center every week, tearing it down, storing it, doing all these things, raising funds to build a new building, all these stuff. I've spent lots of time facing the challenges. But when I think about that, I can't stop. I can't help but stop and think about the opportunities that the Lord might work through us. That even in those challenges, as the Lord moves us out of our comfort zone and puts us in places where we might be a little disoriented, it ought to be the thing which drives us maybe more than we ever have to our knees. Helps us to lift up our hearts to God. And say, would you get us through this next period of time? Would you, would you prove yourself powerful again? It can actually be a sanctifying time, which every minister understands. They don't flee from challenges because of the dangers. They embrace them because of the opportunities. They understand that sometimes to do great things brings great obstacles. But through those great obstacles can come great faith. Which I guess you could say really is another marker of Paul is just simply that he saw challenge as opportunity. He saw challenge as opportunity. He embraced it. He understood that it wasn't just the end goal, but it was the process that can be very good in his life. He said, we did this. We went through this. We felt like we had the sentence of death. We felt like someone had condemned us because of the way we were ministering. And the difficulties we were in. But he said this was all from God. In order to teach us. Not to rely on ourselves. But on him. That's my prayer as we move. My prayer is that God would teach us that. In ways we've never known. My prayer is that God would show us. As Faith Community Church. Ways to trust him. That we've never had. uh, And never have been challenged in before. And that we'll come through this process. Rejoicing for the trial, thankful for the challenge, looking back on it and realizing God may have never done some of the things he did in us had it not been for those days. So I invite you, I encourage you to pray together with me. We'll weep. I'll cry with you in the next days or two as we say goodbye to some good memories at this location. But I can't help but look ahead and think about the tremendous memories that are about to be built together as a church. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for reminders from your word 
that this church is not a building, it's not a location, it's not bricks and mortar. It is very much your body, you as the head working through us. And we pray that you would do that wherever we may be. Help us to never think of ourselves as a location, but think of ourselves as a people, as, a, as a, an organism that is, is centered around your glory, it is centered around your gospel, that exists for the proclamation of the truth. And may we never cease then to be the church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.